This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Theodore McLaughlin about his book, Desertion, Trust and Mistrust in Civil Wars. This book was published by Cornell University Press in 2020. It looks at why soldiers choose to abandon the fight or to switch their allegiances, and how some armed groups manage to hold together. Theo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so I'm an associate professor of political science at the Université de Montréal, uh, where I am also the director of the Centre d'études sur la paix et la sécurité internationale, the Center for Peace and Inter- uh, for International Peace and Security Studies. Um, and uh, my, my research focuses on civil conflict and military behavior and military politics, uh, of which this, this book is an example. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Um, So uh, let me uh, ask you how you came to write this book. Well, this book grew out of my dissertation, which itself grew out of a seminar paper in graduate school, which was actually about the Middle East on desertion during uh, uprisings in the 1970s. This was uh, a paper I, I wrote a few years before the, the uprisings of 2011, actually. Um, and it grew out of my fascination with civil wars and really wanting to understand so uh, desertion and defection at the micro level. And I wanted to focus on civil wars in particular. Um, there's a, lit- a rich literature on military cohesion, and that literature focuses mostly on international conflict sort of doesn't really differentiate between international and civil wars. But um, these questions in the civil war context are especially fascinating for me. In a civil war, the question of loyalty can be a really open question. Which side are you on in a society that's divided among multiple armed factions? Civil wars you know, geographically provide a lot of opportunities to leave very often in a country that you, you uh, that a soldier potentially knows well and has networks in. Um, and there's uh, a real uh, complexity of motivations uh, potentially uh, uh, inciting an individual to join up and, and potentially to leave. And so I came at this question um, with the hope of, of trying to explore uh desertion and, and loyalty in civil wars uh, in, in a lot uh, greater detail. The other, uh, the other thing that pushed me to, to write this book is that um, studying civil wars in, uh, in the mid-2000s when I was in graduate school, uh, it came uh, in the mid and late 2000s. Uh, we had a lot of studies of rebel recruitment. That uh, was something that uh, was really, really uh, popular at the time and, and uh, where there was a lot of scholarship, but there was less known about choose, soldiers choosing to leave an army. The decision to me isn't necessarily a mirror image. Things change once uh, an individual joins an armed group. 
And, you know, ultimately, this is also a phenomenon that matters quite a lot. You know, if you think of the, for example, the mass defection in the Syrian army in 2011 and 2012, that really fed uh, the, the rebellion, uh, the same phenomenon occurring in Libya in the Libyan civil war starting in, in 2011. Or if you think of the Iraqi army's collapse at Mosul, uh, the long running desertion problems in the Afghan national army, uh, desertion and defection, I, I think, are, are really critical um, for victory and defeat uh, in civil conflict. And as I uh, get to in the book, the decisions that soldiers make around desertion and the decisions that armed groups make around controlling desertion uh, can really wind up shaping what people's experience of civil war is like. Uh, so that's how, that's uh, broadly how I came, came to the subject, how I came to the case. I mean, the, uh, the, the, uh, the book is uh, mostly focused on the Spanish Civil War. And my interest in that was really sparked because of a chance remark of a friend of mine who wasn't even a political scientist who mentioned how uh, fascinating he found the Spanish Civil War and suggested I take a look. And the more I looked, the more I realized you know, he, was, he was right, that it was an extremely rich case that offered me a lot of leverage over, over the questions I wanted to ask. So that's the genesis. That that's fascinating, and the and the result is a is a very sophisticated book with so much policy relevance, and we'll talk much much more about the Spanish Civil War, um, but to to sort of clarify your understanding of desertion in the book um, sort of uh, covers both what we might think of as desertion proper, where soldiers leave the fighting entirely, and also defection, where they might switch sides, right, and go to a different armed group, and the book. Um, develops what you call a relational approach to desertion. Now, the argument is very, very nuanced, right, uh, in the book, but I, I wondered if you could give us maybe the, the broad contours of the theoretical argument here. You bet. And so the relational approach to desertion focuses really on, on trust and mistrust among combatants and between combatants and their armed groups as drivers of desertion. So broadly speaking, uh, trust among combatants keeps soldiers fighting. Mistrust gets them to desert. Uh, and what drives trust and mistrust uh, in turn are perceptions about how committed uh, others are, both in the sense of committed to the cause of the armed group and the sense of committed to, to, to fighting for it, to really be willing to take on the burdens of fighting in a war. Um, and so uh, so this uh, cashes out in two uh, major issues. So the first is how trust is formed among groups of combatants. And what I look at in, in, in the book uh, are uh, factors above all, like costly signals that uh, soldiers send to each other. So in, in some units and some armed groups, soldiers have to prove their commitments uh, to each other through, for example, uh, longstanding ties that they have from pre-war networks like activist groups. Um, another uh, source of really important source of costly signals of proving your, your willingness to fight is joining up when you don't have to and when joining up implies that you're taking on a real burden. You know, the government group is asking you to do a lot and to commit to a lot, to, to rigorous discipline, to rigorous training, to uh, being willing to obey orders even when those are, are, are risky. If you're willing to join up in those circumstances, that, that sends a fairly uh, a costly signal. Um, and as well, the battlefield itself and what uh, and what soldiers actually do uh, when in battle uh, sends desertion, sends excuse me, sends a signal to their uh, to their fellow soldiers. Um, and so, in armed groups where soldiers uh, continually send these signals to each other, their commitment to to, to fight, um, they uh, in these armed groups, in my view, desertion winds up being uh, a lot less likely. And even soldiers who are initially fairly lukewarm about fighting um, uh, wind up fighting because of the, the very strong norms of collective action that install themselves in, in these in these armed groups. In others, though, uh, soldiers doubt each other's commitments. They don't send each other fairly 
strong uh, uh, signals, for example. And you might, so you might not know a fellow soldier, um, or you might even know uh, a soldier and know him to secretly, in fact, support the other side. Um, you, an armed group, might uh, force uh, soldiers to fight, or have volunteer recruitment very demand very little of, uh, of of recruits, such that joining up doesn't really send much of a signal about. Uh, somebody's willingness to fight. It might not insist on a rigorous training regime. You might witness other soldiers slacking, not bothering to turn up. And so very weak norms of collective action install uh, themselves. The army might be riven by, by rivalries, by sub-factions. And here desertion is a lot more likely um, because you simply don't trust that another soldier uh, is, is actually there to fight for a faction. Uh, is, is, actually, is actually there to fight for the whole armed group, but instead potentially to fight uh, for, for a sub-faction. Um, and so the, so the first major issue is how these uh, norms uh, of cooperation and this sort of strong trust among soldiers emerges or doesn't emerge. The second big issue for me is whether coercion can make up for a lack of trust. Uh, so in our, a lot of armed groups employ punishments for desertion. This is this is pretty standard. It's pretty widespread. And in fact, it, it's it's in lots of armies and not just in uh, in civil wars. Uh, my just as a personal example, my my grandfather who fought uh, in the U.S. Army in the Second World War. Um, uh, it told uh, you know my family in, in years later that they were actually made very uh, they were made to, uh, to to be very clear on what the punishment for desertion was in the U.S. Army at that time, which was execution. Now during the Second World the World War, the U.S. Army uh, executed exactly one individual for desertion, right? But uh, um, if my grandfather's experience is anything to go by, uh, the the message was at least very clear. It's, it's pretty standard to have uh, punishments for desertion. You can ask yourself, uh, does it work? Does it make up for uh, a lack of trust within uh, an armed group. I find that it's, it certainly can, but I emphasize the limits. I think there is both a, de uh, a, a deterrence effect and a potentially a provocation effect. And in armed groups in particular, where uh, there are quite strong factional rivalries or quite strong stereotypes about who's loyal and who's disloyal, uh, a, a major problem emerges with coercion, which is that it winds up becoming arbitrary. So the punishments that soldiers experience are not necessarily linked to their actual attempts to desert, but to what the army presumes to be their disloyalty. A lot of them are preemptive. A lot of punishments are uh, um, are enacted preemptively uh, against soldiers that the armed group uh, presumes to be uh, disloyal. And that generates a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy uh, in which uh, soldiers are provoked to leave uh, before they have a chance uh, to, to undergo punishment. So what I'm trying to do here is to build an account of desertion and fighting in civil wars that brings the fact that individuals have complex motivations and are often and often apolitical motivations, together with the real political character of conflict, um, you know, together with the the, the 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 image that civil wars have of being uh, political struggles at a really fundamental level, but the reality as well that individuals who fight in those civil wars, um, the politics of the civil war isn't necessarily front of mind all the time uh, when um, survival considerations are really important. So I, I try to bridge the gap between the the between the, the political and apolitical character uh, of civil conflicts or what Stathis Kalivas in a really important article once called the Schmidtian or Hobbesian character uh, of civil conflict. Um, so uh, to my mind, the, the grand political themes of, uh, of civil conflict very often cash out in the interpersonal relationships uh, among soldiers. And so you know, part of what I'm trying to do in this relational approach to desertion then is to look at how soldiers navigate um, 
you know, civil wars where they're seeking to survive um, and uh, to and potentially to advance a cause, but in a, in a world that's that's structured by their relationships uh, with other soldiers and all in the context of um, uh, of political ideologies and identities. Now, the the way that you sort of try to tease out this argument and provide evidence for it is. Um, primarily looking at the Spanish Civil War, right? Although you you do, you're very careful to bring in other examples to show how the argument might travel more broadly. And you also have a chapter in the book that looks at the Syrian Civil War, which I hope we'll have time to get to as well. Um, now, I'll admit the Spanish Civil War is not a case that I was very familiar with before I picked up your book. Uh, I suspect some of our listeners might need at least a refresher. Uh, so would you mind giving us just a little bit of background information on that war? Absolutely. So the war uh, lasted from 1936 to 1939, um, and it, it came out of the highly charged uh, pre-war environment of the Second Spanish Republic, which had been in place uh, since 1931. Um the the politics of the Second Spanish Republic involved intense political mobilization uh, prior to the war. And so this permits me some leverage over this question about uh, how political identities and ideologies uh, shape people's lives. Um, the Second Spanish Republic uh, had had a, a series of different governments. It started with uh, governments on the left that had, uh, you know, the center left that had a, a major reform project in place to reform uh, multiple different aspects uh, of, of life in Spanish society, uh, from uh, the, status of, the status of women uh, to the role of the church to the role the army and society, um, this major reform project butted up, butted up against uh, very strong conservative and in fact reactionary forces within uh, Spanish politics and society. Um, there was a subsequent right-wing government um, uh, for a couple of, of years until the return of the left in February of 1936, several months before uh, the start uh, of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, the war itself then began with a failed coup attempt against the Spanish Republic, um, led uh, by a cabal of officers, including the eventual leader of the rebels, uh, Francisco Franco, uh, who uh, then was the, the dictator of Spain uh, until his death in 1975. Um so this means that because the war starts with this failed coup attempt uh, between the 17th and 19th of July, uh, 1936, the problem of military loyalty is right there from the very, very beginning. Um, and, and so it's, it's uh, an inherent part of the conflict. And essentially what happens is uh, there's an attempt to take over the government immediately. Uh, as I say, it fails, but that divides the Spanish armed forces. Um, the rebels uh, the, and the Francoists um, wind up having sort of a, a, a majority of uh, the regular Spanish military forces um, at their disposal and, and raise uh, a number of militias as well to supplement them. Uh, on the Republican side, uh, the Republic does retain uh, the services of a very large chunk uh, of the regular uh, army and officer corps, but, 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 but uh, clearly in the minority compared to the Francoist side. And uh, just like the Francoist side, they attempt to uh, supplement this with a number uh, of civilian militias, uh, largely based on uh, uh, unions and political parties, and, and to a large degree sp spontaneously. There's a spontaneous mobilization uh, of these militias at the very outset of the Spanish Civil War. And I say that the Republic tried to supplement itself with um, uh, with militias, but that's actually uh, that's um, uh, 
uh, quite that's a lot more complicated. Um, the Republic isn't fully comfortable with having uh, so many autonomous militias in Burge and uh, has a certain fear, you know, that uh, um, uh, that the uh, militias organized by several of the more um, radical unions, especially, uh, are going to wind up getting out of hand. And so resists uh, arming the militias at first until it realizes that uh, that it really doesn't have much of a choice. One of the dramas that uh, occurs then on the Republican side uh, over time is what to do about the militias and how to try to bring them into a militarized uh, sort of into a centralized militarized structure. And so uh, the uh, uh, the war continues for several years, and it's um, a very uh, slow conflict fought. Um, after uh, you know an initial rush towards Madrid by the rebels, uh, there uh, the the conflict gets bogged down, and in fact, um, there seems to be a deliberate strategy on the part of the Francoists to slow their advance in order to take over more of the country progressively and to cleanse it as they see uh, uh, of the left um, as they go. Um, and so there's a there's a series of uh, uh, of a slow series of defeats essentially by uh, the Republican forces uh, until uh, by 19 uh, by April of 1939 um, the uh, the rebels managed to take uh, control of the remaining uh, provinces within uh, within Republican Spain and eventually the fall of uh, of Madrid. Um, the international politics of the Spanish Civil War is something I don't get into very much in the book, but is uh, extremely important. So the rebels enjoy the support of fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Uh, the Republic uh, has uh, the, the more limited support of the Soviet Union. And there's an attempt um, by, uh, you know, there's debates about what, uh, what countries such as France and, and, and Britain ought to do. Um, and uh, a sort of um, a willingness to, uh, to, to not intervene, which winds up favoring uh, the Francoists quite clearly uh, when uh, Fascist Italy, Nazi Germany are willing, to, are willing to get involved, and there's also uh, considerable participation of international forces um, uh, on the Republican side, especially as as, as, as many people know about um, the uh, the phenomenon of foreign fighters is something that, um, that that plays a very large role in the Spanish Civil War. Again, it's not something I get to too much in the book. I, I focus mostly on uh, the Spanish uh, soldiers themselves. So, what this history sort of allows me to do. Uh, in the Spanish Civil War is to uh, look at the variation in attempts uh, to organize militarily. With the the many different militias that emerge, uh, uh, especially on the Republican side, there's a sort of wild laboratory of uh, uh, wild experimentation in, in how to operate a militia and how to operate a fighting force, ranging from groups that look very much like armed forces with fairly rigorous discipline, with the expectation that soldiers obey orders uh, on the one on the one hand to on the other end of the spectrum uh, highly undisciplined units where it's made fairly clear to militiamen that they can kind of come and go as they please uh, where um, officers serve at their pleasure and not the other way around uh, where um, there there isn't necessarily a, a clear expectation of of being of being willing to fight over the long term, and there's a hope on the part of uh, of many that uh, just the revolutionary zeal uh, of these soldiers to to resist the reactionary forces that the um, that the rebels are uh, are are pushing uh, will be enough, you know, to sustain a military effort. 
Um, so there's a variation across militias at the start of the, of the Spanish Civil War, particularly on the Republican side. There's an evolution over time where the Republic attempts to then control, to bring these militias under control and to impose new rules. And so there's variation over time um, with how the, the, the Spanish Republic organizes its armed forces. And there's variation between the Republic and the nationalist forces. So this, this variation is what uh, winds up giving me, I think, a lot of leverage over, over what occurs, uh, over, over understanding um, the, the signals that soldiers send, uh, the politics that they um, that they that they that they live under, uh, and then the the desertion decisions they wind up making. And and the book really makes great use uh, of that variation. So you you begin your examination of the Spanish Civil War focused at the micro level, decisions that are made by individual soldiers. Uh, you focus on a province in northern Spain, uh, and you look at how the composition of military units affected uh, desertion rates. Now, all of these chapters are very, very rich chapters, um, but can, can you sort of summarize your findings there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, as you say, I looked at uh, one province, at Santander, where uh, the, the military records were uh, in, in particularly good shape. And so it was, it was, it was possible um, uh, to, to reconstruct what units looked like. And so what I focused on was the composition uh, of different companies in, uh, the, in the Santander Army Corps. Um, what I uh, wanted to examine was essentially uh, whether a soldier would be more or less likely to fight uh, based on how many other soldiers uh, in his unit, and I use his because uh, you know we're, t- we're talking about uh, individuals that all in the records, um, according to the rules of the army at the time, were men. Um, and uh, so if any self-identified as female, uh, we don't know about that. But uh, it, 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 so, so that's why I'll, I'll carry on using that pronoun. Um, but what I, so I wanted to examine was whether a soldier would be more likely uh, to fight given uh, uh, the composition of his military unit and given, oh, uh, in particular, whether he was fighting among other conscripts or volunteers. It's really easy to say, for example, that a conscript would be less likely uh, to fight than a volunteer. It's, 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 it's fairly easy to make that claim. But what I actually find in the chapter is what's much more important to that than that is uh, what the other soldiers in, in one's unit are. Um, a, a, at least equally important, as important is the percentage of um, of a, a unit that's made up of conscripts or of volunteers. So I find that uh, a conscript serving entirely among volunteers uh, would be far uh, would be less likely to desert um, than a volunteer serving among conscripts. Um, the The idea here is that uh, a soldier is you know carried on by the norms that uh, that develop within uh, within his armed group. So I think that's the central finding of um, of the chapter. Um, but I look at a couple of other uh, of other dynamics within uh, units as well. One of the themes of the book is uh, whether just the the, the the strictly social ties among soldiers matter and how. Um, so this is a this is a longstanding theme in, in military sociology: the idea that friendships or bonds among soldiers are really important to keeping them fighting. Them fighting, and they can be. But the problem with that analysis is that bonds among soldiers can be really uh, helpful to them to do things like desert together or to resist the army together. In the Vietnam War, uh, groups of soldiers would get together to, for example, assassinate their officers. Uh, this isn't the sort of thing uh, that is fantastic for military cohesion necessarily. And so um, what I uh, look at in the chapter in order to, to tease that idea out 
is um, the social homogeneity of of companies. It's it's often uh, felt that birds of a feather uh, flock together, and so that friendships or bonds among soldiers are more easily built among groups of soldiers that are uh, that are relatively similar to each other in terms of where they're from, in terms of say their occupational background, um, and uh, and so I look at the at the social composition uh, of these units and uh, their age as well. So according to these three dimensions. Um, uh, their their county of origin, their occupation, and, and their age, um, and I examine whether units that are more socially homogenous uh, soldiers in those units are, are are less likely likely to desert. And what I find it really is that it actually really depends on the conscription rate. So what I mean by that is a socially homogenous unit um, is, is certainly uh, less likely to uh, to experience desertion to the extent that it's volunteers. Uh, once we're talking about uh, conscript units, the fact that, for example, a group of soldiers might all come from the same place isn't necessarily going to be a thing that's going to reinforce the willingness of those soldiers to fight. Um, the fact that soldiers all come from, from the same place and have all been conscripted together uh, may lead them to, to build on their social bonds, perhaps by simply knowing each other before the war or getting to be uh, finding friendships easier uh, over the course of the war with, with soldiers that they didn't know beforehand. Uh, that social bond can be useful for them to desert together and not uh, not just to, uh, to, to fight together. And uh, so some of the reports of desertion that, that, that I read um, make this pretty clear. The army's worried about what happens when they put soldiers together who know each other. The army's worried about what happens if they put brothers together in the same unit, particularly if one of them uh, seems to be uh, a little bit wobbly in terms of his loyalty towards, uh, towards their side. Um, you know, finally, I look at factionalism, and I, I look at the idea that uh, that mistrust can emerge in an armed group when it's driven by factional uh, rivalries. And the key factional rivalry that I look at is a rivalry between two major union confederations, and this was a feature of politics across, uh, in, in many different places in the Spanish Republic. On the one hand, um, the Socialist Union Confederation, the UGT, and the Anarcho-Syndicalist Union Confederation, the CNT, uh, which do you know, so these two uh, major union uh, federations that competed for each other, uh, competed with each other for uh, for workers uh, under the Spanish Republic that supported different um, uh, political factions that were much more or less willing, to, uh, depending, uh, to support the republic itself. And uh, what I found is that uh, in companies that were polarized between these two big union union confederations, as to say, evenly split between them, the desertion rate uh, tended to be higher. And we see, uh, you know, again, in qualitative archive uh, material and uh, in the, some secondary analysis that I, that I did of other sources uh, written about the civil war in this province, um, that there uh, were, was considerable concern among different factions um, for the place of their faction within an armed group, uh, for you know, trying to trying to ensure that their own um, uh, leaders would get senior positions within the armed forces and would be willing to to promote their own within 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 armed. So the the result for mistrust, uh, you know, seems to be uh, uh, fairly clear and fairly important. So um, so that's what I found in in um, in this province that 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 ultimately it's it's not just the individual motivations, the individual correlates uh, of us uh, of of desertion that count, uh, but really correlates at, at at a social level within the armed group and the the uh, way that uh, an individual the, the characteristics of a unit that a, that an individual finds himself in. 
Now, we, we should mention that, um, you know, in, in demonstrating uh, these findings, you're relying on statistical evidence, but also qualitative evidence that's drawn from primary and secondary sources, as you mentioned. Um, now, there's, uh, there's this intriguing argument, which you mentioned, uh, and that you call the provocation effect, right? This idea that um, punishing ostensible deserters can actually provoke desertion. There's, so there's there are these potential situations where coercion could become counterproductive or desertion uh, can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, as you said. Um, so can you tell us about the evidence that you find on that? I think you look at the officer corps. Is that right? That's right. I, and I look at the officer corps in, in, the, in the next chapter um, to a large de- degree because of the uh, you know, the, the the fascinating phenomenon of the preemptive punishments uh, of officers at the outset of the war. So as I, I said, the Spanish Civil War began with a failed coup attempt, and this leaves the incumbent Republican side with a real problem. It's got a number of officers uh, that uh, are still within its army, uh, but they're under immense suspicion. Do they really, in fact, secretly support Franco and the rebels. Uh, as I've said, uh, the rebel side uh, has a clear majority of the uh, of the Spanish armed forces under its control. Um, it's uh, built on militarism. It's led by officers. Uh, there's uh, a number of different reasons to suppose that officers really secretly support you know the other side. There's also a history of immense mistrust between um, the left and the uniformed security services uh, within Spain. So for example, in October of 1934, so uh, that's to say a a little less than two years before the start of the Spanish Civil War, there had been a a miners' revolt in the province of Asturias um, as uh, contemporaneous with another uh, rebellion in Catalonia. And the Spanish army was called in to repress the rebellion. You know, and so these, uh, and, and including uh, the colonial forces that had been deployed in Morocco, are called back to Spain to rep- to put down this this workers' revolt. Um, the paramilitary police, called the 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 civil guards, are also widely reviled uh, by the workers' movement on the left as basically being the repressive apparatus of the aristocracy, particularly in the countryside. So this is immense mistrust between the left and uni- uniformed security uh, services, but they've got a war to fight. So there's a real dilemma here, and um, a and over a thousand officers appear to have been executed um, in the first few months of the Spanish Civil War, and so uh, there's a great deal of ambiguity over these executions. A number of them appear to have been very clearly the punishment for actual attempts to defect and to join uh, with Franco's forces or actual attempts to support the coup attempt in the first place. Um, it's, it's pretty clear that, that, uh, that, uh, that many of these executions were quote-unquote justified in the sense that they responded to an actual behavior. And so you'd expect those to deter others. Right? It's a punishment for an action. And if the uh, Spanish Republic is able to catch those officers who uh, really attempted to defect and to, to, to punish them for it, you might expect a coercive or a deterrent effect on the rest. On the other hand, we don't know, and uh, folks at the time uh, very clearly didn't know that to what degree these executions were in fact linked uh, to uh, actual attempts to desert. A number of them seem to have been arbitrary. You have the, formu- uh, the, the, the formation of popular committees in, in places across Spain in the early days uh, as the shock of this coup attempt uh, unfolds that target um, 
people who are seen as enemies of the left uh, for violence, including uh, members of the officer corps. So um, a number of the executions uh, may have been um, completely arbitrary. And many of the officers uh, that, that remained uh, felt this to be the case. Certainly. There, was a, there, was, uh, um, uh, there were a number of cases of officers who had friends who were shot, who, um, according to them, there was no way that they supported Franco, but they were uh, targeted anyway. And there's no reason to suppose that executions that appear to be arbitrary uh, should have that much of a deterrent effect, quite the opposite. You know, we'd expect them to provoke um, greater degrees of desertion and defection. So I wanted to tease this out. And I uh, had access to this absolutely incredible database of uh, the military careers of the Spanish officer corps that was uh, put together by Carlos Engel, who was um, a chemist and an amateur historian who was fascinated by the Spanish officer corps and who, who made it uh, his work to develop this incredible database of, of, um, of their, their military career. Uh, and it's based on every time an officer's name comes up in, um, in an official record, you know, as so we have their, their promotions, um, you know, if, if, uh, if they're reassigned, if they're, uh, if, um, and 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 a number of different records about their their executions linked to uh, pensions that uh, their families wind up getting from the Francoist side after the war. This is somewhat problematic as a data source, and I just really want to to, to acknowledge that. Um, but it, it's it's pretty much the best that we have about these uh, about uh, whom he actually have been executed. And so what I do is I examine whether. Um, in a given uh, sort of network or group of officers defined by officers serving in the same branch, right? So cavalry or infantry, for example, and in the same province, whether a high rate of execution among those officers correlates with a high rate of subsequent defection. And uh, what I do is I differentiate between those groups that had a high rate of uh, coup participation at the outset of the war and those that didn't. Um, the, the finding then is that when there's a high rate of execution in a unit where very few officers had actually successfully managed to make it to the other side at the outset of the war, um, these are, are circumstances in which the, the rate of execution seems to be wildly disproportionate to the actual uh, presence of disloyal behavior in, in a group of officers. And so you'd expect naturally for the provocation effect of coercion to be stronger there, for, for coercion to look a lot more arbitrary. And what I find is that it's exactly in those units with a high rate of execution without a high rate of initial coup participation uh, where there's, there are more defections that occur subsequently. So it really does appear that in these circumstances, um, efforts to sort of bring the officer corps to heel or to, to punish it collectively for um, the, the coup attempt uh, backfired for the Republic. And they probably lost quite a lot of officers that might have been willing to serve. Um, so that's the uh, so so that's what uh, how I attempt to tease out the effect of coercion uh, in the Spanish Civil War. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
And it's very compelling evidence. Um, now, after that, the book kind of zooms out, right, uh, or scales up to the macro level. Uh, so you move from decisions by individual soldiers up to the level of the unit or the army. Um, you focus first on the Republican side, and you you break up your analysis of the Republican side, looking first at the summer and the fall of 1936, and then looking at the period 1936 to 1939, where the Republic had uh, regularized its armed forces. Can you sort of tell us about your analysis of desertion across these two chapters? Sure. So I'll start with uh, with the summer and fall of 36. So as I said, you have all these militia forces that emerged at the outset of the war. And as I said, they have uh, many different ways that they try to organize themselves from, uh, you know, imposing fairly rigid discipline to uh, giving uh, soldiers much greater degree of liberty to come and go as they pleased. Uh, and they advertise this. It's, it's pretty clear that, uh, um, that, that different forces are pitching themselves as more or less disciplined as they're trying to recruit. And there's a massive degree of enthusiasm for the war and on the part of a lot of people who are just outraged at uh, the attempt by the right to roll back the social gains that had uh, you know, emerged in the Republic. Um, but then how's the question is a bit, how, how's that channeled, right? Um, and is it channeled into, into units where um, people are really prepared to fight a war, prepared to obey orders, or is it channeled into uh, units where a number of opportunists can, uh, can 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 wind up settling in with you know who don't really have to do very much to pay the cost of war and can still earn a decent wage, as is the case, and uh, gain the social status of being uh, a militia member in, in a time of crisis, you know, without necessarily having to to commit to, to very much. And so what we find is is a real difference in the militia that insisted on military discipline from the outset, that insisted upon uh, the obeying of orders that uh, imposed a greater degree of training, and in particular, a set of militias organized uh, by the Communist Party, although uh, it included uh, included non-communists and members of, of, of different left-wing factions, a group of militias called the Fifth Regiment on the one hand, and many of the other uh, militia uh, on the other. On the other hand, um, in the Fifth Regiment, there are uh, militiamen were made to commit very clearly to obeying instantaneously the orders of their officers. They made it very clear uh, that the punishment, for example, for for, for disobedience and desertion, was potentially execution. You know, and that they and uh, that was made uh, very very clear to the to them at the outset. Um, and uh, individuals who wanted to join a militia had had a, had a free choice. They could choose those militias, or they could choose to enroll in ones that uh, advertised in newspapers their lack of, of discipline. That said, that this is not this this isn't a, this isn't a barracks discipline. You, 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 if you want to come, you want to go. You're going to be able to. Um, and so the willingness to join a disciplined unit, despite the opportunity to still be a militiaman, still gain a wage, and have that flexibility, um, sent to my mind a fairly clear signal of a willingness to fight and was an important forge of uh, strong norms of cooperation built on trust among among soldiers. Um, and what emerged in the militia that didn't insist on this level of discipline uh, was a certain level of chaos, a certain level of uh, of uh, norms that could wind up being very, very lax, where uh, people would be surprised if uh, somebody didn't go home at night, for example, but really wanted to stay with the unit um, and, and carry on holding a position, for example. 
At the same time, the militia are bedeviled by other problems. The fact that there are all of these different factions on the left uh, means that uh, there's a fair amount of chicanery among uh, the militia in competition for uh, the resources that are being provided to them eventually by the by, by the government. Um, there are circumstances in which you know, two militia uh, from different political factions might be side by side in a village and nominally fighting for the same cause, uh, but one would advance and the other wouldn't support them. Or even, uh, you know, probably the most uh, among the most sort of striking stories of this that I that I saw was uh, one unit that had the the artillery piece and the next unit down the line that had the shells. And they couldn't get it together to uh, match the one to the other because you know, that would be supporting the wrong faction. And so these are the sorts of things that really uh, encourage a lot of mistrust in the part of a lot of the uh, a lot of the militia. Um, and it's not to deny the real enthusiasm that so many militia members had. Um, and to my mind, one of the important elements of the tragedy of the Spanish Civil War for the Republic is that this real enthusiasm um, didn't, in so many cases, wind up being channeled into a structure where uh, militia could really uh, have confidence in each other's willingness to fight. So uh, that's really for the period of uh, the, the summer and fall of 36. This structure is obviously problematic for, for a variety of reasons for the Spanish Republic, um, and uh, militia units wind up falling apart as they uh, attempt to fight the Francoists in, in a lot of places. And it's not just you know these less organized militias that experience desertion problems. The, some of the 5th Regiment units did as well, but they seem to be uh, able to provide a lot more resistance. So this this circumstance is, you know, this the, these um, attempts at, uh, uh, military organization are pretty problematic for the Republican government. And the attempt starting in the fall of 1936 is to bring them in, in, into kind of a, a centralized structure with a common set of rules about behavior um, and uh, rules of discipline. And so a number of different processes take place. One is um, the uh, the government uh, centralizes the militias into a common structure, forces them uh, to accept uh, a, a, a common chain of command and not to, to act all on their own, forces them to accept uh, a set of common rules of, uh, of discipline, and uh, forces and, and creates as well, um, uh, and, and, ex- and drastically expands uh, the coercive apparatus of the state in order to try to, uh, among other things, uh, punish deserters, um, as well as, you know, in the eyes of a lot of um, political factions that have a rocky relationship with the government uh, to to repress them. And so uh, I, that means that means a lot of different things for trust and mistrust in the military forces operating for the Spanish Republic. And, and so it means a lot of different things for desertion. Uh, on the uh, the other major change that occurs, and I ought to have uh, brought this up perhaps even first, is uh, is conscriptions enacted. All the militia forces that I had mentioned at the outset of the war were, were volunteer militia, but as I said, with very different um, things that voluntarily joining up meant. Um, beginning in the fall of thirty six, a, uh, a, um, a conscription becomes uh, quite right, widespread until it's the uh, until it's the dominance uh, you know method of recruiting. Uh, for the Republican forces. And so, uh, again, as I say different things, um, this has different uh, consequences for trust and mistrust. On the one hand, volunteer militia who chose to obey 
the order to militarize and to remain within the militia, we're committing to a greater degree of discipline. And so uh, what I find that, uh, what I find happens is that volunteer forces become more reliable and as the war wears on and as they, as volunteerism, uh, soldiers who had joined up voluntarily, who remained voluntarily, even so remained, even though, uh, for example, there had not not been a conscription order for them specifically, if they chose to remain voluntarily within the militia at that point, rather than to resign, they were committing to something more substantial than they had been previously willing to commit to. And so their capacity to resist the uh, Francoist forces seems to increase. You know, but at the same time, there are a number of problems that emerge with militarization as well. Uh, so um, the addition of, of, of wave after wave of conscription creates this problem, as I, as I found in, uh, in Santander province in, in the, the micro level chapter, where um, the influx of conscripts means that volunteers who had been around for quite a while now start doubting to a great degree the motivations of those who are around them. Well, you didn't join up in the first place. You just waited until your number was called. You know, how do I trust that you're really you know, willing to fight? Um, so that's a problem that emerges. Uh, the coercive apparatus of the state improves, and so the punish so deserters are punished much more regularly. And again, that seems to have a deterrent effect, but it also seems to come with a provocation effect. It's it's really regarded by um, by some of the of the political factions in Spain at the time as a as um, a tool of repression by a government increasingly dominated by the Communist Party. Um, so one of the things that that happens again it's, it's a war of multiple different political factions. Um, is that a, a different Marxist-Leninist party, the the PUM, um, uh, the Partido Obrero de Unificación Marxista, so the Party of Marxist Unification, the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification. So they're a uh, a Marxist-Leninist party that uh, tries to distance itself from Moscow and is kind of critical of Stalin's regime, um, and uh, is led by a former associate of Trotsky's. And so they wind up being, uh, they wind up seeing the militarization order um, as a tool of, of repressing it, uh, which to a large degree was, you know, it's, it's, it was used uh, by communist authorities to target uh, PUM members and to, to remove them as, as sort of a problematic political faction. Um, and so you wind up uh, having PUMistas who are no longer willing to fight for a regime that seems to be willing to, to target them for political repression, regardless uh, of the fact that they, you know, had been willing to fight uh, against, against Franco. Um, so that's uh, a set of, of complicated changes, but uh, I think it, it offers a, a fair amount of leverage over, uh, over the question with these overtime changes. Now, you have a very interesting analysis of the rebel side as well, the, the nationalist army and the factors that shaped assertion there. But I'm going to go to your final uh, empirical chapter, which looks at the Syrian civil war. Um, and, you know, this this is really great because it shows us how your argument would apply in a different and, and more contemporary context. Um, so what do you find um, regarding desertion across different armed groups in Syria? Yeah, again, it, so it's it's good to point out that, that we're looking at multiple different armed groups in, among Syria. Now, there are thousands, so I can't, you know, take them on. And indeed, when I talk about the Free Syrian Army, and I focus on five, one of which is the Free Syrian Army, we're really talking about... Um, uh, it's it's more of an umbrella really than a than a faction uh, so to speak um, yeah but I look at uh, at five different forces so the the so Syrian government troops um, Jabhat al Nusra uh, ISIS um, the 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 Kurdish rebels and the Free Syrian of the, the YPG YPJ and the Free Syrian Army um, and oh they 
ranges well, uh, quite widely in the practices that they um, employ and in the level of trust and mistrust that emerges. So, for example, on one extreme, there's the, the, the uh, in, in Japa del Nusra, for example, uh, um, it's, it's based on uh, fairly strong pre-war jihadist networks. It's, uh, of, you know, so therefore soldiers who, who knew each other fairly well bro, when, when it comes time uh, to, to form a faction in, in, in the civil war. Um, including ones who, who had known each other in Syrian prisons and who had been released deli- deliber- deliberately by the regime in order to um, give the opposition a different cast, of course. Um, it's uh, based on voluntary recruitment and uh, on commitment to a fairly, a, a relatively rigorous training regime compared to a lot of other factions. And so it's a relatively cohesive force. Um the uh, the Kurdish rebels and the, the Kurdish militia and the YPG YPJ uh, we have you know a, um, a, a, a a different relationship uh, uh, to to say the least to the to the war than a lot of the other factions who um, uh, you know wind up striking a deal and to to some degree with the um, uh, with the the Syrian government and who a lot of their fighting is against ISIS instead of the regime. Um, their practices are also uh, relatively cohesive. Um, there, there is uh, uh, the use of conscription, but the use of conscripts in only limited uh, roles. And so the bulk of their fighting force is really voluntarist. And again, uh, based on um, a fairly strong degree uh, of discipline, although with uh, significant uh, regional variations. So um, you've got relatively cohesive forces on the one hand, uh, ranging to... Um, Syrian government troops uh, that uh, to, to uh, um, where there's this sort of paradox that's kind of interesting um, among um, much of the regular army, the regular conscript force. Um, we're talking about soldiers who have very little uh, motivation, very little trust in each other to fight. Um, conscription is the is the standard practice for recruitment. Um, widespread corruption means that um, soldiers have very very little confidence in in their officers. And the fact that the bulk of the conscript force is Sunni and is under uh, immense suspicion uh, from the regime as being willing to support the rebels uh, winds up uh, provoking a number of them to to leave before they are in a position to be to be targeted. Um, they're they're under such intense suspicion that a stray remark can uh, really lead to very ser- severe consequences for them. Um, there are Sunni officers, uh, even uh, in Hishambu Nasis research, for example, um, who were uh, unwilling to. Part their cars outside of their mosque, let, lest they be detected as having been uh, as having been uh, relatively uh, as as having been um, relatively religious Sunnis, and therefore you know coming under some suspicion. Um, so uh, this is a circumstance that winds up feeding the mass desertion from the Syrian armed forces in the first couple of years of the war. On the other hand. Uh, elite regime forces uh, seem to hold together much better. Um, and here, uh, the fact that a lot of them uh, are, uh, are draw very, very heavily on, uh, on on the Alawites community is an important factor. I think it's a little bit more uh, complicated than just sectarianism. It's it's not it doesn't just resu- uh, sort of wind up um, be, being easily summarized by sectarian difference. The practices that the regime enacts to repress Sunnis and to uh, to make them targets of suspicion wind up driving their uh, desertion behavior, and. F- um, uh, and, uh, so, so there's a variety of different military practices. Uh, I talk also a lot about, uh, ISIS in the chapter and, uh, the fact that at, at the outset, they look a lot like Jabhat al-Nusra in terms of insisting on, uh, obedience and discipline, 
Um, but they also expand quite rapidly, and their norms of recruitment seem to drop substantially over time, whereas Jabhat al-Nusra de- deliberately remains small. Um, ISIS also insists that members of different factions join them and, and swear their allegiance to ISIS, whereas Jabhat al-Nusra is willing to work with other factions but not insist that they join. And the consequence for that is, is a really interesting difference where um, for, for ISIS, they they basically wind up bringing in members of different factions who don't particularly want to join ISIS, but are, I, I feel a significant degree of pressure to do so. And so they expand quite rapidly and they maintain their cohesion for, for, uh, for, for a long period of time. But as ISIS starts to come under much greater pressure over time, this also has uh, creates significant structural weaknesses. The fact that they had expanded so rapidly and brought in so many soldiers whose uh, commitment to ISIS was, was doubtful to say the least also enables them in, in my analysis uh, to, to, to fall apart rather more rapidly. Rapidly. Um, as for the Free Syrian Army, um, and here I think that there's, uh, you know, once again a, a tragedy that's somewhat similar to the tragedy of the Spanish militias on, on the Republican side. There, there are many people who are, uh, you know, deeply committed to uh, uh, the cause of a Free Syria and to the overthrow of uh, the Assad regime, who have been willing to take on immense risks in in the protest movement um, at the beginning of 2011. And it's one of the tragedies of the Free Syrian Army that it does not wind up bringing those uh, individuals into a, a clear structure, um, where uh, with you know clear uh, you know for, for example insisting uh, all all along the line uh, on military discipline. Again, a wide variety of different norms emerge. Uh, some units have very little training at all. It seems to be the the, the main um, modus operandi in the in free and Syrian army units. Uh, others um, insist on, on on for example um, you know at least a, a certain training period. Um, and so it translating the popular will to overthrow the regime to a um, a willingness to fight a war uh, is quite problematic. Uh, many other individuals are, are are normatively committed to nonviolence and to and 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 strategically committed to the idea that it's it's really nonviolent resistance that's going to wind up uh, uh, damaging the the regime and that uh, that a war is essentially um, impossible to win. And so um, it, it's it, the the Free Syrian Army does uh, you know struggle to maintain cohesion. It also struggles from problems that my book uh, my book's theoretical approach I want to say um, doesn't do a good job explaining. I think the desertion rate um, in the Free Syrian Army winds up being higher than I than even I would have expected it to be, uh, in part because of a, a simple lack of, of ammunition, uh, cash, um, and uh, um, you know and ultimately food and some units. I think you know it sort of sets a scope condition to the degree to which trust and mistrust can can really make a difference. If you don't have enough bullets, it's a little bit futile to fight, um, and uh, and questions of trust and mistrust don't really come up. Um, so I don't think that. So I, I think uh, the approach of my book, uh, based on relationships among soldiers, does a pretty good job of explaining why some armies in the Syrian civil war managed to hold together uh, much better than others, with some exceptions. But I, th- I think on the whole, it gives a, a fairly good portrait. It's a very persuasive analysis. And it, it also helps us think about how your argument might apply in other uh, contexts like Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, uh, and so on. Um, but Theo, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, so um, my final question is, you know, this book has been out in the world uh, for a little while now. Um, what is it that you're working on at this point in time? 
Thanks for asking. I've got a couple of projects. Um, one is on uh, the the consequences of foreign military training missions and uh, whether uh, and uh, the reasons why they seem to succeed or fail. Um, and another is on uh, civil wars that, like the Spanish Civil War, uh, or to a large degree the Syrian Civil War, occur because of uh, a military split and the, the circumstances in which uh, divisions within an armed force can give rise uh, to uh, to a civil war with uh, some uh, somewhat grim speculations about the possibility of that uh, occurring in the United States, uh, unfortunately. So uh, that's the, those are the research projects that I've got on the go at the moment. Those sound fantastic. Um, well, Theo, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on. And I hope you enjoyed I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed the book, and I hope your listeners do as well. The book is Theodore McLaughlin's Desertion Trust and Mistrust in Civil Wars, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening. <laughs>